Abraham Lincoln once said, if, uh, if this is coffee, please bring me tea. But if this is tea, please bring me some coffee. So whether you're sipping tea or coffee this morning, I hope uh, it's exactly what you intended. Let's delve right into this. Uh, over 80 years ago, southwestern Indiana sculptor and LinkedIn enthusiast George Honig told a story when he was studying under a guy named Harmon McNeil, who is a New York sculptor. Uh, McNeil was working on a Lincoln statue, and uh, Honig commented to a colleague that Lincoln spent many years at Honig's hometown of Rockport, Indiana. Nonsense, of course. Lincoln and his family went through Indiana on their way to Illinois, but they weren't there for more than a few days. Today, uh, just as 100 years ago, the Lincoln story is largely unknown. Many authors viewed Lincoln's Indiana years as inconsequential. To some, it was actually even a negative for Lincoln's development. Ward Hill Lamont wrote a, a biography of Lincoln in 1872, and he described Lincoln as the diamond glowing on the dunghill. Then here's our own Indiana senator, Albert Beveridge, who in the early 1900s wrote that Lincoln's Indiana neighbors were ignorant, rough-mannered, vividly superstitious, consumers of incredible quantities of whiskey and tobacco, and inclined to chewing, smoking, snuffing, and cord cob pipe puffing. Their sense of modesty was embryonic. They lived in cabins that were ill-kempt, dirty in the extreme, and infested with vermin. And they had low thinking, repellent living, and filthy talk. That was from our own United States Senator. Not a good look. So against this backdrop, I was pleased a couple years ago to participate with a group that was behind a new CNN documentary. Uh, and they reached out to me to talk in the documentary about Lincoln's youth. And I thought, finally, here's, gonna be, here's someone who's going to give Indiana its due. This was a, a six-part series. Each episode was about 30 minutes long. Uh, narrated by Sterling Brown, who some of you may remember from an NBC series called This Is Us. There were some other famous contributors. Uh, Conan O'Brien even made some appearances to talk about Lincoln's humor. And uh, the, the documentary does a good job. It uh, uses a lot of uh, well-known Lincoln historians to illuminate his life. Uh, some of the best uh, historians we have, Harold Holzer, Michael Burlingham, Aaron, Alan Gelzo, all great books, by the way, if you're interested, with cutaway scenes. And it tries to tell the story of the unvarnished uh, view of Lincoln. Um, and you'll see me in episode one talking about Lincoln's youth. Um, it does a good job of presenting Lincoln as he really was. But unfortunately, it did really make many of the mistakes two other documentaries and historians have done. It glosses over the critical time period of Lincoln's life, 1816 when he was seven years old, to 1830 at age 21. I want to ask you to reflect on your own life from age 7 to age 21 and think about how important those years were in shaping who you are as a person, what you believe, how you perceive the world. So too it was with Lincoln. So at least for you all this morning, I'd like to briefly touch on some of the aspects of Lincoln's youth that we really rarely hear about and then talk about what I think Lincoln might have to say uh, to us today. Here's the path Lincoln took uh, in to, from Kentucky to Illinois in the fall of 1816, right about the time Indiana was becoming a state. Thomas and Nancy Lincoln, his uh, parents, packed their belongings, their two kids. Lincoln had an older two year, uh, sister who was two years older than him, Sarah. 
They left all their belongings in Kentucky, carried what they could with them on a small wagon and a horse, and made their way uh, to Indiana. Uh, now, they left Kentucky for two reasons, according to Lincoln. One, the land surveying system was messy, and so people got into land disputes all the time. It wasn't uncommon to lose your land in that situation. The other reason they did that was, frankly, because of slavery, and Lincoln's family was opposed to slavery. They arrived in Indiana. Native Americans had left not too long before. In fact, Abraham Lincoln's grandfather, whose name was also Abraham Lincoln, who he was named after, had actually been killed by Native Americans. And uh, Abraham's father, Thomas, had witnessed the killing. And he and his brothers had to shoot the Native Americans to fend them off in an attack in Kentucky. So Native Americans and, and the myths surrounding them loomed quite large. There's a picture of uh, the Lincoln neighborhood. And here is what Indiana looked like at the time. You'll see that you had Posey County, Warwick County, and Perry County. Vandenberg and Spencer didn't yet exist, but eventually uh, in 1818, so shortly after they moved, Spencer County was carved out uh, from Warwick and Perry County. And I could talk a lot, by the way, about how those maps were made up. It's pretty interesting. Sometime you might ask me, why does Vandenberg County have a jagged line on its right eastern edge? There's a pretty interesting political story there. But here we see a picture of what uh, the neighborhood would have looked like for the Lincolns. Uh, most of their families all had similar backgrounds. They came from Kentucky by way of the Carolinas, maybe Pennsylvania or Virginia, and they came seeking opportunity, what the open frontier provided, and relatives typically came with them. Here's a picture of who we think was Thomas Lincoln. Most historians agree this was, in fact, a picture of him. There's some debate over that, but most agree that it was. Um, whereas Abraham was interested in ideas and learning, economic development, Thomas was somebody who was a man far more of his time, where to live, to make a living, to survive, you had to carve literally your livelihood out of the wild. And so he uh, much more valued farming, carpentry, basically using your hands. Books were all fine and good, but that wasn't going to help you survive. Certainly it didn't help him or his forefathers survive. A lot of folks viewed him as a shiftless drifter. He moved around a lot. Relative to a lot of the New York historians who are writing, he was considered poor. But there's been a big pushback, and I'm one of them, from historians who really say he's gotten a bad rap. For his time period, he was actually a pretty uh, middle-income type guy. Um, he was a hard worker. And certainly, I think it says something to raise someone of Abraham Lincoln's caliber for what kind of father he was. You know, when I give this talk to folks outside the area, I have to put a map to show where southwestern Indiana is. On the So I think you guys know where uh, all of this is. And of course, in Spencer County, you see Lincoln's boyhood home. Here again is a picture of Little Pigeon Creek, which was the name of his uh, community. By the time Lincoln reached age 13, there were nine families with 49 children under the age of 17 living within a mile of where uh, they lived. So, you know, small community, not necessarily totally backwoods, but still very, very tiny. I, I like to point out this jagged line that goes across from east to west. That actual road went right past the Lincoln Farm. That connects Cordon, Indiana, which at the time was the state capital, with New Harmony, which was a major, major center of learning and education. And so that road got quite a bit of traffic. And although this was a pretty backwoods-type area, Lincoln would have been exposed to a lot of travelers. And in fact, there are stories that he would like to sit on the fence and talk to adults as they would walk by on the road. Now, 
That's no big deal to us today, but back then, that wasn't really proper for a young kid to be talking to adults without their uh, father there. And so his father, of course, wanted him working in the field, didn't want him wasting time talking to people. But Lincoln wanted to learn from all these people that were interesting moving by. This is hard for you guys to see, probably, but on the left is a map of Indiana in 1816. And you can see how developed or really undeveloped it was. There were sparse counties. The counties were large because there weren't a lot of people. On the right is a map of uh, Indiana in 1830, about the time the Lincolns left Indiana. Tremendous development, change, and growth within that short period of time. And it really bugs me when I read histories of Lincoln that gloss over these years and they just talk about, like the quotes I mentioned at the very beginning, how backwards it was and how few people there were and how uneconomically inspired this area was. That was frankly true when the Lincolns arrived. They lived in a lean-to, three-sided house for the winter when they first arrived in Indiana. But by the time they left, it was a fairly bustling area. And a lot of that, and by the way, here's an example of that. You see a pretty primitive home on the left that looked like what they may have lived in. On the right, that's a for their time, a very nice log cabin. So there was a lot of change in Lincoln's life here in Indiana, and it's hard to paint it with a broad brush stroke as to, oh, it was all backwards, or even that it was all fine and dandy. He experienced the whole gamut of human existence while he was here in Indiana. A lot of that growth was due to the Ohio River. It was, in many ways, the interstate highway of the time. and It was only 17 miles from Lincoln's house. Here's a story that really had an impact on Lincoln that involved the river. Uh, when he was younger, two travelers asked to go out to, the row, uh, to a boat that was traveling. They couldn't come to the shore, so they would hire people to ferry them out to the, the boat. And Lincoln and his friends would sometimes do this to make money. First time he did it, he said, I could scarcely believe my... He, he said it, and they tossed two silver, half-silver dollars into the boat when they got off. Here was what he said in response. I could scarcely believe my eyes. You may think it a very little thing, but it was a most important incident in my life. I could scarcely believe that I, a poor boy, had earned a dollar in less than a day. The world seemed wider and fairer before me. I was a more hopeful and confident being from that time. So the freedom that Indiana offered you to pursue your dreams, to make your own way, um, really had a profound effect on Lincoln, and I think it affected his view on the economy, which followed him all the way to the White House. This is not what Nancy Hanks Lincoln looked like uh, exactly, but it's what we think she may have looked like based on descriptions. There were no portraits or pictures taken of her during her lifetime. Uh, she is perhaps the most interesting person in the Lincoln family uh, from a history standpoint. She uh, had a very checkered past. Her mother gave birth to her out of wedlock, then had a second daughter out of wedlock, even today, that can bring shame on certain families, depending on where you grow up, uh, what kind of uh, environment you're in. But in that time period, that brought tremendous shame. And so actually, Nancy's family moved several times. Several historians, including myself, think those moves were prompted by these out-of-wedlock births and the shame that brought not just on Nancy's mother, but the entire Hanks family. Her maiden name was Hanks. And so they moved all around. Um, eventually setting in, settling in Kentucky. Abraham Lincoln, for that reason, never actually knew who his grandfather was on his mother's side. It was an unknown, wealthy Virginia planter is all we, we know about that. Unfortunately, tragedy struck in 1818 when Nancy died of milk sickness, uh, which is caused by cows drinking 
contaminated white snake root, and that is the plant on the right, which still grows quite prominently in our area today. At the time, they didn't know what caused it, but the cows would eat it, it'd create a poison in the milk, people would drink the milk, and they'd die, and a lot of people died at that time from that. Nancy Hanks uh, Lincoln was one of them. So again, this is, by the way, a big deal. This Nancy's checkered past followed Lincoln all the way to the presidency, so when he was running for office, a lot of people felt that uh, when someone was immoral, which having a child out of wedlock was certainly immoral at the time, that immorality was sort of a genetic trait, and that, that followed you into your childhood. And so Lincoln coming up in that childhood was seen as damaged goods when he was running for president, something he himself was constantly ashamed of, and it was often at the forefront of his mind when he was running for office. When she died at age nine, when she died, Abraham was nine years old, Sarah was 11, had a big effect on Lincoln. A lot of people believe that had something to do with some of the uh, depression he had throughout his life. What I think is particularly interesting here is that Thomas, Lincoln's father, who was age 40, decided to leave young Lincoln, who was nine, and Sarah, who was 11, at home by themselves in this very primitive Spencer County area to travel back to Kentucky to find a new wife. Here she is, Sarah Johnston Lincoln. That is an actual picture of her, of course, much later after Lincoln was president. And um, 10-year-old Lincoln, who he was 10 by the time she came, uh, was very close to Lincoln. In fact, she said that in comparing Lincoln to her own biological son, John Johnston, she said, both were good boys, but I must say, both now being dead, that Abe was the best boy I ever saw or ever expect to see. And I think, uh, no matter what time period, but particularly that time period, to heap such praise on a stepchild instead of your own biological child shows just how much she was close to Lincoln, but also how exceptional of a child Lincoln really was. Here is the grave of Lincoln's sister, Sarah Lincoln Grigsby. That grave is still there. That picture was taken not too long ago. Uh, this, she died in January 1828. Uh, she was almost 21, so Lincoln was about 19. Little's known about her, but we do know that her death had a huge effect on Lincoln as well. So think about this. They're constantly moving in very primitive areas. His mother dies when he's young. He's left to be taken care of by his young sister, only two years older than them. His dad leaves him, goes to get a new wife, comes back. He has to mesh with his whole new family. And the person who had become his surrogate mother in many ways, his sister, is now dead. So this crushed him as well. Again, something else that led to quite a bit of depression in many people's eyes. I think that that death had a lot to do with what happened next, which was uh, a trip to New Orleans. Uh, a local a businessman uh, had Lincoln and some friends take some goods, travel to New Orleans, sell them, then get back on a boat with the money and come back to Spencer County. Even today, that's a big responsibility for a 19-year-old. At that time, when you're sailing, or not even sailing, but floating on a raft, that's a lot of responsibility. You think about all the you know, physical things that you could run into, uh, you know, whirlpools or all types of water dangers, wood dangers. But at the time, this is shocking to some people, there were actual pirates that they had to deal with on the Ohio River. And in fact, Lincoln and his friends were attacked on the way there by recently freed slaves who obviously didn't have anything. They saw people on the river coming down with goods. They thought, okay, here's our way to finally make some money. They were attacked. They had to fend them off went to New Orleans, and this is where many people believe that Lincoln, for the very first time, saw slave trade. 
because New Orleans was a huge slave trade area. And uh, there is some apocryphal quotes that say, while he was in New Orleans, that's when he decided he was going to dedicate his life to eradicating slavery from the United States. Now, again, I think that's apocryphal, but nonetheless, I do believe seeing slavery there had a very profound effect on Lincoln, and in a way that really turned him against it. Lincoln described his education as defective. Uh, he had less than a year of formal instruction, but he did quite a bit of reading, and it was all self-taught in many ways. He would go around to any book that he could get within a mile radius of his house or sometimes farther, ask to borrow it, and just devour it. He loved to memorize what he would read. He loved to go to church and memorize what the pastor was saying just because he loved these ideas. As you can tell, probably I'm quite interested in uh, Lincoln's youth, and so um, I'm constantly researching and writing. Here's just a brief snippet of a couple books that I've done. This one is Abe's Youth, Shaping the Future President. I did this with Bill Bartelt, who is, frankly, the world's, the world's leading expert on Lincoln's youth here in Indiana. Anytime, anybody, any book, any... There are, when Lincoln movies are made, whether it's Spielberg or somebody else, and they want to understand what happens to Lincoln's youth, they consult Bill Bartelt, who is a member at Trinity United Methodist here in Evansville. And so we work together on this uh, book. It's really some of the best scholarship from a group called the Southwestern Indiana Historical Society who collected stories that were second- and third-hand stories about Lincoln and his family. As these people started to die, uh, the Southwestern Indiana Historical Society wanted to collect their stories of the Lincoln family and the Lincoln environment more particularly so that we knew what happened and collected that and we published that with Indiana University Press. Here's another one that came out last year that I did. I was convinced there's still some more work that needed to be done for source material. So this collects the most significant scholarship from a gentleman named Edward Murr. Um, and he is one of the only writers to cover this lost period of his life. And I want to tell you just a little bit about Murr because he has a connection here to to Methodist Temple. He was born in 1868 near Corridon, close to where Lincoln's extended family lived, uh, Lincoln's uncles and some others. So he had a, quite an interest in that. He ended up becoming a uh, Methodist minister and spent some time in the area where Lincoln grew up. And so he got to know a lot of the parishioners that knew the Lincoln family. He was a pretty good histor historical researcher, and he wrote these stories down. And we would not have them but, but for Edward Murr, and so I compiled his best scholarship and put it together in this book. But note where he spent some time. He spent some time at Bayard Park in Evansville, First Church in Princeton, Paoli, Church in Washington. Does anybody know the significance of Bayard Park to Methodist Temple? Raise your hand if you do. Okay, several of us. Uh, Methodist Temple actually formed as a merger of two churches, one of them being Bayard Park. So in many ways, he was a former Methodist of Methodist Temple. Here's a picture of him later on in life. There he uh, wrote a history of Lincoln's youth for Indiana Magazine of History. This is Albert Beveridge who said all of those nasty things about us Hoosiers, the United States Senator. He actually wrote a four-volume book called The Life of John Marshall, who was a U.S. Supreme Court Justice and actually won the Pulitzer Prize. So he was a United States Senator but carried a lot of heft in the historical circles, and he started to write a similar history of Abraham Lincoln, which for all accounts could have become a really seminal volume, Unfortunately, he died with only two of the volumes being written, um, and those are available. But he consulted nonstop with Edward Murr, and they wrote letters back and forth, again, just to underscore how seriously uh, Murr was taken as a historian. And so, again, I took all of his most significant scholarship, combined it into this book. 
and, and that's that. So uh, with that background, a little bit about Lincoln's youth, I want to end here today with what I think Lincoln might have to say to us today. And there's a way I want to attack this, and I want to look at it through what are, are called the four cardinal virtues. Some of you may know that ancient philosophy held uh, really that our choices were boiled down to vice and virtue, the easy way and the hard way, the well-trod path or the road less traveled, that of virtue. And we all face this choice. And I think far more often than not, Lincoln chose the one that made all the difference. He chose virtue. And in the ancient world, virtue was made up really of four key components. Courage, temperance, sometimes people use the word prudence for that, justice, and wisdom. To millions, they're known as the cardinal virtues. And that they've been adopted by Christianity, and you'll see C.S. Lewis write about this a lot, most of Western philosophy, but even Buddhism, Hinduism, just about every philosophy you can imagine incorporates these virtues in some way, shape, or form. And we call them cardinal not because they come down from church authorities, but because they originate in the Latin word cardo, which means hinge. It's pivotal, the stuff that a door to the good life hangs on. And ancient philosophers believed they were the key to a good life, sort of like the kind of a compass, north, south, east, and west. That's a reason we call it the cardinal directions. They guide us, they tell us where we are and what is true. And so I want to share how I think Abraham Lincoln embodied these four cardinal virtues, some of the wisdom he shared, and how I think they can inspire us today. So first, wisdom. In the summer of 1859, there was a Wisconsin State Fair, and it was buzzing with attendees who were eager to hear about the state's agricultural progress. They heard from a little bit of an unexpected figure, and that was Abraham Lincoln. He was not, in 1859, the towering figure of American history we recognize. In fact, most people in Wisconsin might not have known him as anybody at all, but he was a man obviously on the brink of monumental destiny at the time. And they expected Lincoln to talk about farming, economic prospects, but instead he came to talk about philosophy and wisdom. And he told the story of a wise Eastern king who asked his philosophers for a phrase that was true in all situations, a sentiment or a piece of wisdom that would be true in situations of joy, in sorrow, in triumph, or defeat. And so the Eastern king said this, And this too shall pass away. These seven words encapsulated life's transience, in joy, in sorrow, in triumph, and defeat, everything is fleeting. And Lincoln's choice to share this wisdom at the State Fair, I think, revealed his knack for cutting to the heart of the matter. It invited everybody to think about life's transient nature, perhaps overshadowing his own challenges and triumphs. It serves as a comfort in times of despair, but also a words of caution in times of joy. It encourages us to face life's ups and downs with both grace and resilience. Let's say you win some great contest. Well, that feeling, that contest, that accolade, it's going to pass. Let's say you lose some great contest. That despair, that loss, that too will pass. Maybe Lincoln grasped the fleeting nature of his own life. He stood, obviously, at the edge of a legacy that would outlive him. The presidency, the Civil War, the Emancipation Proclamation, all of it was monumental, but in many ways it was also transient. 
as his life was. Maybe he internalized the king's phrase, and this too shall pass away, because it seemed he would return to that piece of wisdom frequently when he tried to place everything in perspective throughout his life. And so, whether it's success or struggle, Lincoln's wisdom remains relevant. Life is fleeting, and all things, on earth anyway, will pass away. Second, the second virtue, justice. And here I want to share Lincoln's views on justice, which are profound, particularly for a lawyer like me. Start with this quote from uh, British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. She famously once said, Europe was created by history. America was created by philosophy. Think about that. Nearly all European nations trace their beginning to some common ethnic kinship or some cultural characteristic, but America was created, and this is unique for countries throughout the world, was created by exiles united in a voluntary ascent to shared political beliefs. And that's, I think, why G.K. Chesterton, a British writer, said when he visited the United States, America was a nation with a soul of a church. And he wasn't saying that because of our religiosity. He was saying that because we had a common creed, like a religion, enshrined in sacred texts of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Lincoln understood this to his core, and how he understood it in the Civil War really changed the trajectory of how we view justice in many ways in the United States. In 1776, there was, of course, a miraculous stew of folks who came together to create the Declaration of Independence, and 11 years later they created the Constitution, and both of them were centered on a belief in universal human dignity. And we don't celebrate that concept enough and how remarkable um, their ideas, and not really their ideas, but their ability to put it into practice really was. The government doesn't grant you the right to free speech, to assembly, to religion, to press, the right to protest. Most other, in fact, all other civilizations felt that if you had those abilities, the government gave you those rights. We in the United States did not believe that. We believe those rights are inalienable. The government's role is simply to protect those rights. Government isn't the source of those rights. It's simply a tool to help protect them. And that's a really profound idea we take for granted. Of course, the sad irony is that the founders who argued these ideas often fell short of those ideals. Many of them, or some of them, owned slaves. Nearly all of them opposed equal rights for women. So when Lincoln came along, it actually obviously caused some upheaval when Americans started to adopt, adopt the ideals that were in those documents, that all men are created equal, including black Americans. And then a few generations, all people, including women, are equal as well. Abraham Lincoln, and this is where Abraham Lincoln's sense of justice really changed things. Abraham Lincoln believed that the Declaration of Independence did not necessarily proclaim people equal in all respects. Instead, it meant that all people are created with equal rights. They're ours simply by being human. And as a free society, we always need to strive to achieve them. Even if, in the case of the founders, we fell short, the Declaration's concepts of equality as an aspiration, and here's what Lincoln said, those concepts of equality constantly looked to, constantly labored for, and even, though never perfectly attained, constantly approximated, and thereby constantly spreading and deepening its influence and augmenting the happiness and value of life to all people of all colors everywhere. That's the genius of Lincoln's argument. 
that the Constitution is concrete, at least until we amend it. But the Declaration of Independence is our aspiration. That's what we're trying to move to, and that's the American prog project, to move towards the aspiration of equality for all. Temperance, the third one. Prudence. My daughter's name is Prudence, by the way. There's no small coincidence that that's her name in part. The Beatles song played a part of it too, but that's the other one. When we hear the word temperance, uh, C.S. Lewis likes to point out that we often think about abstinence or doing without, um, giving something up entirely. Actually, though, uh, according to C.S. Lewis, temperance is about going the right length but no further. It's not about eliminating something. It's about finding the right amount of anything. It's sort of like Aristotle's famous metaphor, metaphor of the golden mean. The idea that virtue rests between two vices. And Abraham Lincoln had a unique, pretty simple, but I think profound way of dealing with temperance with his emotions. Whenever he felt the urge to tell someone off, he composed a letter, put all of his thoughts and feelings and emotions in the letter, and he slipped it into a drawer in his desk, and he'd go to sleep. And he'd wait the next morning, and he'd go look at the letter again and see if it was really something he needed to send. And far, far more often than not, he took that letter, tore it up, and tossed it into the fire. I think Lincoln's approach tells us not to let others control our emotional state. You know, we talk about these four cardinal virtues, and the Stoic philosopher Epictetus, who really preached these virtues, warned against handing over our minds to anyone who might disturb our peace. And I like this analogy because he really points out that our mind is in many ways like our bodies. We don't let other people control our physical selves, right? We don't let somebody push us around or lock us up or keep us from going somewhere we don't want to go. I think it's important to think of our minds in many ways the same. Don't let someone else control our emotions. Take your emotions, write them down, express them all you need to in private, and then let them go. Lincoln's approach to temperance is something that I've had to remind myself quite often. It's not something I live up to always, but I try to. And I think that cardinal virtue of Lincoln's, what many call the Lincoln method, is something that can inspire and guide us today. Finally, not least at all, courage. You know, as we've talked about, Lincoln's early years unfolded in the backwoods of Indiana, a far, far cry from the White House and the presidency. I think it's those humble beginnings that helped shape his character and eventually led him to the highest office in the land. It's a trajectory that really, in my mind, seems more suited for folklore than for history. And a real quick aside here, I hope you all will agree with me that when I talked about summarizing Lincoln's youth here in Indiana, that is a made-for-Netflix miniseries, is it not? I mean, born into the wilds, cutting your way through wilderness, your family fighting off attacks, uh, losing your mother, your sister um, in the backwoods, going on a trip when you're a teenager to New Orleans and back, getting attacked by pirates. All of this is just great fodder for a Netflix miniseries. So when I write and finish what I'm working on currently with Bill Bartelt, the comprehensive history of Lincoln's youth, we're going to shop this to Netflix and get it made, and I hope all of you will help me get that made. But anyway, back to courage. I can only speculate about Lincoln's inner thoughts. Um, he grew from a young man who split logs to being remembered as the great emancipator whose, link, whose legacy endured for ages. History often lives 
or dies in key clutch moments. And I think Lincoln's actions and, his, and speeches throughout his life showed him to be a man with a deep well of courage. From the minute he announced he was going to, really frankly from his youth, he constantly exhibited courage. But the courage I want to talk about is the courage from the minute he announced he wanted to run for president during a tremendous time of civil war and upheaval. Confederates, people who hated him, wanted to kill him from the get-go. After Lincoln was elected, he took a train from Illinois to Washington, D.C. There were constant threats on his life, to the point that nobody even wanted him to announce where he would be at any given time because they were confident he would be killed. Lincoln was a primary target. Half of the United States wanted him dead, and a significant portion of the United States actively attempted to carry that out. It was entirely possible when Lincoln elected to run for office and take office, and it ultimately was the case that this conflict would take his life, but he stayed the course. What would you do? Even if the stakes aren't as high for us as they were for Lincoln, I think we all face moments where we have to choose between running or facing a fear and standing by a promise. Lincoln passed that test in ways most others would not. Had Lincoln fled or shirked his responsibility, as many others have done in similar scenarios, America as we know it today, I don't think would exist. Now, even though the Civil War seems, era seems far away, and even though most of us here in this room may never be president of a country facing a civil war, Lincoln's example can still inspire courage in all of us. So, frankly, can all of the Union soldiers who each faced mauling, horrendous jail time, and, of course, death. I'm thankful for their example, but not all courage is violent, of course. It's long been held that there are two types of courage, physical and moral. Physical courage is the kind needed in battle. It's the kind Lincoln needed when he hopped on that train to go from Illinois to Washington, D.C. It's the kind of courage Lincoln needed every time, frankly, he stepped out of the White House. But moral courage is needed in fighting the silent, internal battle against corruption and cowardice to do what is right or to speak the unpopular truth. In reality, these two conceptions of courage are, I think, a lot closer than we realize. Courage is putting your butt on the line for something, for someone, literally, figuratively, financially, perhaps even fatally. I believe this tradition of courage is in danger. There's cowardice of all types, political, corporate, artistic, cultural, even religious cowardice, and it's endemic. People are afraid to take risks. We're afraid to follow our own path in life. We're afraid to do what's right. And let me make very clear, I am not preaching from any sense of superiority because I am every bit as guilty as everyone else in this room. But each individual citizen, even in tyranny, holds incredible power. As individuals, we have agency over our own lives. Too many of us ignore this power. We decline to vote. We can't be bothered to oppose injustice or stand up for what's important to us. And then we wonder why the world isn't the way we want it to be. We wonder why we feel we're slaves to forces outside our control. 
There was a Soviet dissident, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who said, must one point out that from ancient times, a decline in courage has been considered the first symptom of the end. That is something I wish far more of our elected officials would remember today. It doesn't have to be this way, because courage isn't like some rare natural resource, something that has to be mined or refined. It's there. It's within reach within all of us. In fact, I think it's reaching out to all of us right now. Courage calls each person differently at different times and in all forms, different forms. But in every case, it is, as they say, coming from inside the house. Will we answer? Can we be brave enough to try? For me, among many others, Abraham Lincoln can inspire us to stop being so passive, to straighten our backs and to cancel our captivity to cowardice, to seize courage. Thank you all for listening about my love of Abraham Lincoln. <laughs>